All right. Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 33. Hear the word of the Lord. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, well, well. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a moment to pray. Um, Because there's a really good chance, uh, a really good chance that those words have history for you. Those words have a history for the church. Those words may have a history for an experience you have with a church. Those words may come with a bunch of pain, a bunch of hopes, a whole bunch of aspirations. Um, Some are excited about the wrong things. (laughs) Some are experiencing shame around other things. And then many of us are just nervous about all the things, okay? And even as the passage was read, that may be, if we want to use a more common word in our culture now, that may have triggered kind of like an emotional response. You may have certain feelings around some of those words. There may may be cultural dispositions. We all are bringing things. And so for us to actually hear what God's word has to say, we need to open our hands a little bit. Um, Because I know for many of us, when you hear those words, your body posture might be... (laughs) Right? Like that, if we just think about what's, you know, a good counselor always says, what's happening in your body right now? Right? Like, are you aware? Probably many of us, when we're hearing that, like, <gasps> what's Gabe going to say? Right? Like, um, how are we going to navigate? What is good news? But it's not always received. It's not always interpreted. It's not always helped and guided in such a way that it is indeed good news. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to go ahead and close our eyes, just all of us here. And I want you to just take a breath. Breathing is a very spiritual practice, and it's a very human one. And then I'm going to invite you to release to God whatever it is you are carrying in this morning, and actually expect God to guide us through his word this morning. I'm going to provide just a couple prompts, followed by some moments of silent response for you, for me. And then I want you to encourage you to actually, if, you, if you're willing to do that, just physically, if you're not holding a child, I guess, open your hands, <laughs> put them before you as an embodied posture of receiving. So in this moment, surrender what you're feeling to God. Maybe you heard this passage misused growing up, and you're not sure you want to stay after you heard the scripture reading. 
Take a moment to release your fear to God now and open your heart to his word for you today. Take a moment. Maybe you're profoundly disappointed by your marriage. Maybe you're barely hanging on in your marriage. God sees you. Take a moment to feel his loving gaze upon you. Maybe you've experienced abuse in a current or previous marriage. Know that God hates abuse. And we join God in advocating for your safety. We lament together the brokenness and twisted nature of so many marriages. In this moment, rest in his care that he has you right now. Maybe you've experienced the pain of betrayal or divorce. Maybe even the unspeakable pain of the death of a spouse. Know that God has not abandoned you and rest in his presence. Maybe you felt social pressure that's unbiblically warranted that says in order to be fully mature, you must be married and you've always felt this burden because you felt content in your singleness. Or maybe you have longed for marriage and have never found it. Either way, God wants you. Marriage isn't a requirement for Christian maturity. Chaste singleness is a great vocation. Rest in God's love for you. And for some, marriage still seems far off in the future. <laughs> God wants to grow you in wisdom even today. Open your heart to hide this wisdom when the time comes, if that's what God indeed has called you to. God, you've designed marriage for our delight communally and your glory throughout history. And in a world of competing claims, may we trust the authority of those who you gave your authority to and see the beauty of the spirit-empowered wisdom and then help us as a community of married and single children of God fully enough in the gospel to encourage each other in our unique callings. It is in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, as we walked through that prayer, I want to just name first, singleness is a worthy, beautiful calling that the Apostle Paul and Jesus himself embodied. I recognize that divorce is a part of stories in this room that come with deep pain and wounds, and there are as many stories in this space as there are people. Today, in the midst of that, whatever I say, I'm not seeking to discount those two realities but instead, we're going to zero in on what the Apostle Paul, led by the Holy Spirit, has to say about how the gospel informs marriage. So I want to say that as a caveat because I'm not going to always come back to that, but let that be an umbrella for our conversation as we step into it. Because the big question as we step into today's text is how is this indeed good news, right? <laughs> um, and specifically, especially in our cultural context, how is this good news for women? right? I think that's an important question. And for many in this room, when we talk about the, the, the avenue of deconstruction, it has been maybe an experience of a parent's marriage or your own marriage or a friend's marriage that has been a catalyst for shaking the foundation you thought you once had and to say, what do I really believe about God's design? What do I really believe about marriage? What do I really believe about Jesus? And so as we go about our reconstructing faith journey through this letter to the Ephesian church, 
I am more convicted that the authors that have been inspired by the Spirit, that have experienced God breathing through them for both timely and timeless wisdom and guidance for Christians throughout the ages, has something extraordinary to offer us here. If we have the ears to hear and the eyes to see. Now, it's going to take a little more work (laughs) for this passage. Not because it's more hidden. I actually don't think so. But because we're further removed. And there are dynamics of what we would say rhetoric happening here. Where the Apostle Paul is doing some pretty surprising and extraordinary work in the first century. That's really good for us in the 21st century when it comes to understanding marriage. There's an important quip whenever you come to the pages of Scripture is to understand that Scripture wasn't written to you. The Apostle Paul isn't sitting in the Jackson County prison system writing a letter to a 21st century Kansas Cityan, right? He was writing it to a first century Christian. It was written to a first century original audience, but it was written for all of us who long to follow Jesus. And there are indeed principles, guidance, and framework here that can help us regardless of our cultural situation. And so, as we step into this, I also don't want to overpromise. Um, because listen, I could preach all day, and y'all know that, okay? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm coming as a culturally situated person myself. I hope to come with humility. I hope to hold loosely what is loosely held. I hope to hold tightly what is tightly held. But I'm confident that you'll walk out of here with probably just as many questions as you came in. They may not be the same ones. And you may indeed feel more equipped, maybe understand marriage better. I hope so. (laughs) And understand how the gospel intersects marriage. But that doesn't mean we're going to answer every question And frankly, there are plenty of situations within marriage that they're not problems to solve, but they're tensions to manage. And so as we walk through this, I want to set good expectations as we step into that. Because what we will see, as the brilliant theologian Michelle Lee Barnwell has said, is that when we come to marriage, Jesus always turns marriage on its head. Always. He turns singleness on its head. He comes with extraordinary redemption and beauty for widows and widowers, for those who have been divorced, those who have experienced extreme trauma, for orphans. He's always coming in and he's bringing a radical perspective that brings life if we have the ears to hear. But today we see Jesus always turns marriage on its head. And we're going to see three intersecting kind of truths. And the further we go into this, actually the deeper we go into the mystery and the beauty of marriage. We're going to see that true Christian marriage is like a peacock. It's beautiful. It's rich. It's colorful. But simultaneously, it's subversive. It's sacrificial. (laughs) And it is a signpost. And each one of these steps goes deeper into the mystery of marriage. Okay? So first, we're going to see that Christian marriage is subversive. Now, this word means basically countercultural. A lot of the broad, usually the broader assumed or the, the broader assumptions of any particular group of people, especially when Jesus is not king, come with some level of distortions, whether it be exaggerations or minimizations. And what we come to the gospel, when it actually engages true Christian marriage, it makes it subversive, countercultural, or revolutionary. So here's what I want us to do I want to read verses 21 through 27 again, and I'm going to read it slowly as we walk through this, okay? Ephesians 5, 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, Love your wives, right? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So true Christian marriage is uh, subversive. And and really, we're going to look at three ways specifically in the first century, and I'll do this quickly. First, 
and just its definitions of terms. I don't know how many times if you're in the middle of a conversation with someone and it feels like you're using the same word, but you're using different dictionaries, right? Um, well, when it comes to words like love or submission or community for that matter, these are common words, but they come with very distinct definitions based upon the biblical text. Love is an action directed toward the good will of the other. It has this action-based framework to it. It's not just, you know what, I loved you because I felt like I loved you. No, there's action oriented within love. Submission is putting someone else's interests above your own. And community is a place where people of both genders are experiencing and engaging in loving action and submission one to another. So you see kind of this reorientation as it's shaped by the gospel, as we even saw in verse 21, before he gets into the particulars of marriage, this broader community that Jarrett Meek so brilliantly laid out for us in verses 1 through 21, that's all talking about the broader community of faith. And now he zeroes in on true Christian marriage. So first, you have these subversive definitions. But then secondly, it's sub- the Apostle Paul's subversive and who he addresses, and how much he addresses them. Now, uh, you know, sometimes we can read this and be like, well, see, he's going after the women. He starts off with wives. Actually, that is us in our cultural position, thinking that he's starting there because he's trying to highlight uh, women to put them down. Actually, this is something radically different. When we look at the text, the Apostle Paul is using a literary framework tool called the household code. It was really common. Um, Aristotle used it as well. And what he would do is he would describe all the way to the smallest political unit in a society, the family. And he would highlight the values of a flourishing society by zeroing in on the smallest unit, the family. Now, was he just talking about the family, Aristotle, when he was highlighting marriage and children and the dynamics of the broader household? No, he's also highlighting the values of a broader community when he goes to the particulars. So this is a household code. And over the next three weeks, we're going to walk through what some might say the quagmire, the complexity, <laughs> the difficulty of this particular passage and what the Apostle Paul is brilliantly doing. Because what the Apostle Paul does is he says, now, Aristotle's coming with one framework and other authors are coming with a certain wa- framework and how you organize society. But when Jesus is king and he's seated, remember, we saw this chapter one, in the highest of heavens, he's already reigning and ruling. How does he organize his people? How does he organize his community all the way down to the smallest element of that community, the family? And this is highlighting major values. And so what the Apostle Paul does, interestingly enough, is that he addresses the wife first. Why? Interestingly enough, once again, if you do comparative study here, Aristotle doesn't even address women children or slaves at all he talks about them and he talks to the patriarch he talks to the husband he talks to the leader in a way that says this is how you're to to manage them right there's these dynamics now i'm summarizing and do some gross overgeneralization but there's an element where he does not address them where the apostle paul actually elevates the dignity of the woman in the marital bond and he addresses her first and says, you have value. I'm going to address you first. Paul's like, I see you. You are a valuable part of the marriage bond. And he elevates their dignity because that's what the gospel does. And that's what we saw Jesus do again and again and again with women who are around him. He's elevating them and seeing their dignity. And then when he does give them a command to submit with apostolic authority empowered by the spirit, he's actually highlighting their agency. Do you see that? When they're not even addressed in Aristotle's household code, they don't even have a choice. The Apostle Paul names the woman in the marital bond first to highlight her dignity, to say, I see you. And then he gives her a command as a highlight to say, you have a choice in the matter to participate. Elevating dignity, celebrating agency. This is pretty profound in the first century. 
and how he's approaching and seeking to care for women. And I know some in here might say, well, that's a pretty low bar, Gabe, right? Golly. And, and maybe so, okay? But throughout history, and frankly, throughout many parts of the world today, and honestly still here in the United States, if we could just get that right, dignity and agency, <laughs> we would be much closer, closer to the gospel ideal. The Apostle Paul has a brilliant framework for including, and, and I would encourage you a great resource to go deeper into this is Dr. Gombas and his brilliant book, The Drama of Ephesians. He goes into the nitty gritty around some of these pieces, but for the sake of time, I want to highlight the beauty of what the Apostle Paul is doing that we might misread due to our cultural lens versus the comparatives within his own historical moment. Also, what's fascinating is not just who he addresses and who he addressed first, but how much he addresses them. If you look at just verses 22 through 33 in the English translation, we'll just do that. The focus is far more on husbands loving their wives than it is on wives submitting to their husbands. Let me just give you math, okay? Right? That helps. I'm not Caleb. I'm not so great at math. But I can give you some percentages. I did clep out of math in college, so there you go. Um, in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, over 70% of the words are dedicated to husbands commanded to love their wives. And under 30% of the text is focused in on women submitting to their husbands. The accent by and large, just by the real estate of text here, is on the husband leading out with sacrificial love, we'll come to see. Which is still really countercultural. <laughs> it's very different than, frankly, the heroes or how we paint masculinity today in our culture that is so quote unquote progressed. So you see there's a subversiveness in its definitions. There's subversiveness in who is addressed and how much. And there's also subversiveness in how this head and body metaphor is used. Now, this is all over the place. You know, the Christ is head of the church, which is his body, in the same way the husband is the head of the family and the wife is like the body, right? So there's this dynamic here. And I just want you to do me a second. Do me a favor, right? Imagine, if you could just close your eyes, and imagine you're coming down the stairs of either your loft, your office building, or your home, whatever works for you, and you trip. What are you going to protect? I'm going to sacrifice my head for my elbow, right? No! Open your eyes. Of course not, right? You're going to tuck and roll, right? Because you understand the importance of the head. This, the Apostle Paul does not ever downplay the importance and still prominence of the head in the head-body metaphor. What he does, and this is extremely important, is he lays out that the head sacrifices for the body. It's, it's, and this is, this is outrageous. Okay, so here's a helpful quote um, by, once again, Michelle Lee Barnwall, neither complementarian nor egalitarian, a kingdom corrective to the evangelical gender debate. She writes, the fundal, fundamental nature of the reversal is critical. It would have struck Paul's audience not only as odd, but even more so against nature. The sacrifice of the head would be suicidal for the entire body since the head provides guidance for the whole. The reversal in expectations in regards to love would also seem shocking in light of the traditional honor conventions because Paul tells the most esteemed part the head, to love the body. He asks husbands to do something that goes against this fundamental order of society, which would have been considered disruptive and even dangerous. Now, what the Apostle Paul does not do is a role reversal. Like he's not saying, men, you normally dominate your wives, and so now you're going to die, and so now women, you dominate your husbands. No, that's not where he goes. This isn't a reversal of roles. And also Westfell fall in the book Paul and Gender brilliantly notes, instead, both wives and husbands are servants of each other with only one Lord and master, 
who has full authority, not some, not when it fits, not when it's comfortable, not when it aligns with my values, but full authority and power over them. Man, if we could just get that right, I don't know, meeting with couples in my office, meeting with married couples, different dynamics, if we could get this service to one another. And, And this was how it was subversive then. And I honestly don't know if we're all that better. In some ways, yes. In some ways, no, right? Every culture has its strengths and its weaknesses. But more often than not, we swap the order. Or often, more often than not, we just go by our feelings. How does it feel in the moment? And feelings are important, but they're good gauges on the dashboard. They don't necessarily set the trajectory of what is always healthy, right? They tell us what's going on inside the engine, but not necessarily what's true north. And many of us find ourselves aimless because we feel uncomfortable with this. And so avoid God's good design or the wisdom on display in Scripture, and we just try thing after thing after thing. And some may even come to this text and say, well, see, Paul, he's being sexist. He tells the wife to be submissive and the husband to love. Like, why not the opposite? Well, I can tell you what it's not. Sometimes when you can't always give the best answers for why it is, you go what's called the via negativa, (laughs) the way of the negative. Um, What I can tell you it's not because the biblical testimony as well as Paul's own practice and how he comes alongside of female leaders and approaches women in his life, he is not saying that in any sort of categorical nature, women are less than men. He is not saying that, nor is he saying that women ought not to love their husbands and men ought not to experience submission in aspects of their lives. Of course not. What I can tell you is that while the church has failed at this brilliant design again and again and again throughout history, it has also been a place that has drawn extraordinary amounts of of women throughout history as a place of healing, hope, and wholeness. Amy Sherman, author of a a great book, Agents of Flourishing, who was actually just here with us, I think it was a couple weeks ago, or yeah, a couple weeks ago now. She does an extraordinary job going throughout the history of the church. And yes, there are gross uh, injustices that come alongside of this, but simultaneously, the early church, who worked with the Apostle Paul, was way outnumbered women to men. The early church, when we think about how they engaged widows, the broader culture saw widows as worthless because they saw women as seeing their identity in men rather than also reflecting the image of God. But not so with the church. The church saw widows as honorable and people that the church ought to come alongside of and actually learn from. We see that the church, within broader Roman culture, men, whether they were married or not, were able to go around throughout Roman society with little to no repercussions and engage in sexual relations with anyone they desired. But it was the church who again and again came back to two categories, consent and covenant. This became the framework for healthy sexuality, the covenant of marriage with still consent (laughs) within that marriage. Again and again and again. As Roman leaders would say, they were very liberal with their table, but very stingy with their beds, right? This was common throughout church history in the framework of how the church understood our bodies and the importance and dynamics there. And it was the church who gave a deeper framework for covenantal marriage and how that was both good for men and women. And frankly, the very thought that husbands are commanded to love their wives and that Christ, who is king, is is saying he loves the church would have been very weird. Once again, with the definitions we're working with that the Apostle Paul lays out. And if we look around, once again, at our surrounding world without Jesus, is it doing any better? I say just look at Twitter. (laughs) 
So two ways, those are three ways that it was pretty subversive in the first century and frankly probably still today. But there are two ways that I think that it's really subversive today and I'm going to do these quickly. A large part of this first point and seeing that true Christian marriage is subversive is kind of like an orientation. It gives us a deeper plausibility for the brilliance of what the Spirit was guiding the Apostle Paul to say not just for the first century but for all of God's people who feel called into marriage as one of the vocational callings for God's people and here's two. One, it's very subversive. Marriage is a dance, not domination, right? If we could get this, where you have people sacrificing for one another and working towards caring for one another, yes, sometimes you step on each other's toes. That's what happens when you dance, especially when you're learning the music, right? But you're learning a dance, you're working together. If we could get this, we wouldn't have the same battles of the sexes that we see constantly trumpeted, sometimes within the church and oftentimes outside. Well, if women would just get their act together, what? If men would just man up, you know what? Like what, some of this messaging we use to attack one another, how is that going to bring us together? Man, we just bite and devour one another. And we're working out of our wounds, out of our pains, out of our insecurities. And we think that if somebody is the similar gender for us, then we finally found our camp and we can attack one another. Man, if we really got this dance, instead of domination, we'd have less Mars Hills and more Golgothas. Right? Secondly, one way that it will consistently and probably even more and more be subversive is that a centering in on covenant, not consumer where we're not using each other's bodies to fix each other, where we're not going after each other just for self-fulfillment, where we're not feeling like, finally, you complete me. No! We come into the marriage covenant because we already know we're enough in Jesus, and we don't go in there waiting for this other person to fill this little gap in our heart because already Jesus dwells there. We step into the marriage covenant, whether we're rich or whether we're poor, whether we're sick or whether we're healthy. Why? To love sacrificially the other. If we could get this down where it is promises made before God in the community of God's people to love one another no matter what comes and then the intimacy and how sex uniquely wires us together and brilliantly guides us into a deeper, wonderful, it is wonderful, reality that we say no matter what come may or what, no, no matter what comes, you can have all of me now and the promises we've made one to another. There'd be something rich there that the world would look on and say, I want that. I mean, let's ask the question, who are your marriage heroes? Let's just ask the question. Is it the people who are always fighting with one another? I mean, always. I'm not saying, I mean, you got, if you're in a marriage and you're honest with one another, you're going to have some fights, right? That's just the way it goes. Two different people. But if they're always fighting one another or there's always and I'm going to say this happens to men and women. I'm not doing gender stereotypes here. That's not the point. Men and women, there can be one part in the, in the marriage that is overly cynical all the time. Oh, you never get that right. Oh, when are you going to get that right? Oh, can you just pick that? He never picks that up. She never picks that up. Like, right? And they're just like, oh, I don't want that, right? Like there's now, we're just constantly biting one another. Is that it? Are you, 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 you're ready to leave one another at the drop of a hat? Of course not. Nobody wants that. Instead, we want, we want the marriages. We see that, that when somebody goes through and they actually can't experience sexual intimacy for years due to physical limitation, but they stay by each other and they serve one another or a terminal illness guides them both now this long trajectory of deep pain, but they stay beside one another. Not because, you know what, it made me feel good, but because I committed to that person. And I'm going to serve that person. Or you go through bankruptcy together and you're sitting there figuring out, you know, richer or poor, how can we get out of this together? What are some healthier practices financially we can work on together, right? Like those are the ones, those are the marriages that make movies. And you go, oh, and you're like crying. You're like, I want that. You know, it's like, we all do. Whenever you're at a wedding, that is the marriage everybody imagines. But how do you get there? How do you get there? It's actually in this design 
friends. There's something absolutely beautiful when we learn to cherish one another the way Jesus has instructed us here by the power of the Spirit. And this is the second aspect of true Christian marriage is that it is sacrificial. True Christian marriage is sacrificial. Now, I'm going to tell you, I, I love being married. You know, sometimes you get like, oh, married life, you know. It's like, I'm like, man, what in the world? I love being married. I love my wife. We had tea like six out of the seven nights this week together, processing our day. Then we watched Downton Abbey's movie on Amazon Prime last night. And it was awesome. And we're thinking back all the episodes of Downton Abbey, like, oh, he's in this. Oh, she's in this. You know, it's great. I love it. That doesn't mean we don't have arguments around certain things that I'm not going to share right now, okay? <laughs> it's none of your business. No, just kidding. No, but in reality, oh, I love it. I, got to, I sat at the table this morning. I told my wife. I told my kids. I said, thank you. I said, I got to go through some really hard texts this morning. And we aren't perfect, but I sure do like you a whole lot. You know? Marriage is great. It can be. And it can be really hard. And Allie and I have gone through some really hard times. They may not be your hard times, but they were ours. But yeah, marriage can be a great life, but the reality is, is also marriage, if you're called to it, it's also a death. It is. I mean, the words submission and dying <laughs> aren't comfort words. Those aren't the ones you necessarily put in your Valentine's card, right? But they are the reality of relationships. And once again, the onus here is on husbands leading the way in death. Leading the way in death. That's what it is. Constantly saying, I wonder how this is going to be perceived by her. I wonder what her needs might be. Let's talk about how can I serve my wife? How can I lay down my life for my wife? That's the major onus here. And we see it all the way in the beginning. Adam's put to sleep. And what happens? Eve, after Adam's rib is taken out, he goes through surgery. There's pain there, friends. Christ, the bridegroom on the cross, his side is pierced and blood and water come out. Like there's an element, once again, that if you are a man in this room and you long to be married or you are in a marriage, if you think about this particular vocation of marriage, you are called to serve and love and die for your wife first again and again and again. You've got to learn to kill selfishness or it'll kill your marriage. Now, I also want to be clear, because this is where this gets real tricky, right? That doesn't mean you should avoid self-care. <laughs> and this is why you need other people in your life, because sometimes we baptize selfishness as self-care, and we call self-care selfishness. Anybody? Right? Here's a good example. Sleep. It could be the exact same thing. <laughs> you could go to sleep to avoid your problems. That's selfishness. You can go to sleep to get energized to serve your spouse. That's self-care. Same action. <laughs> but there's even the why and what it's intended to do in your marriage. But the reality is both of these come with great cost. To submit, meaning putting someone else's interests above your own, or to die for someone in the daily practices of your life, they both are deeply, deeply painful they're worth it. And the Apostle Paul lays this out. He goes, but why? Because you've become one flesh in marriage and the covenantal promises you've made to one another and the climax that comes in the physical intimacy after those promises have been made, you are now mystically, wonderfully, somehow one. And in that space, when you're serving your spouse, you're serving yourself. There's something rich that the Apostle Paul wants us to understand. And that's why I'm going to just, this is a quick aside that is important to name. This is, and the Apostle Paul talks about this elsewhere, but I think it's important here. This is why it's really important, and I'm going to name it. Not everybody likes this, but you should marry a, another Christian. If you're a Christian, not, and here's why. I'm not going to say, oh, because Jesus will be happier with you. No, that's not it. Jesus loves you no matter what, okay? He smiles when he looks down in you. The reason why you marry another Christian is because this is our strategy, the cross for both of us. And when you get married to someone else who's committed to Jesus, you say, you know what? I'm enough already in Jesus. You're enough in Jesus, right? Yeah, so you're not marrying me to try to 
fix you or fill you, right? Oh, no, no, please don't, right? Of course not. And then instead we say, but this is the path, the path of the cross. And no matter what comes, we're going to take the path of the cross together and die for one another and serve one another, right? Yes, yeah. That's why you marry another Christian, because it becomes a catalyst for joy in the midst of the difficulty. You're walking the way of the cross together. And listen, I get it. I've had plenty of conversations where men are lying on them dating sites. Oh, I'm a Christian, right? But nothing about their morality or what they're expecting at the end of the date communicates that. I've seen that in my office. I've seen it with women too. It's not just men. We pick on men, but it also happens with women, friends, okay? Because they want a man who actually does do this. (laughs) Women want a man who's going to die and serve them. Who doesn't? I want friends that are like that, right? So why wouldn't you? I mean, men and women, we want often what is on display here in the gospel And sometimes deception can be a part of that to get it. So I get the complexity there. But man, there's something really beautiful and good about your joy that can come. And I'm not saying it's going to be perfect and I'm not saying it's a done deal because two people who follow Jesus can still have deep pain in their marriage. I'm not saying that, but there is wisdom there. But here's my question for those who are married in the room. When was the last time you sacrificed for your spouse? When's the last time you put their interests above your own? When's the last time you laid down your life for their good? Are you coming home from work to meet with one another? When you go out and pick those date spaces, when you're trying to make key decisions, are you coming with this frame? How am I sacrificing for my spouse? And if you're here and you're not married, Because this is, frankly, this is a category for all Christians, right? Once again, the Apostle Paul is using the household code to give us a window into the particulars, but it also gives us a window into the whole. So nobody gets to get out of the sacrificing for one another game, okay? Like this is a call of the Christian. And so if you're here and you're not married and you're maybe called to the vocation of singleness or you find yourself in the vocation of singleness now, but you hope it's not your story forever, right? We have a diversity of experiences in this room. When was the last time you sacrificed for your friend? Hmm? This is important for all of our formation. And if, I'm not saying it's the ultimate goal, but if you long to be married one day, and that is something you feel like God might be leading you down, sacrificing for your friend is a great space to learn to be sacrificing for your spouse. Not the only path, but man, if you want to think like, what's a good premarital path? Oh, there you go. Just start sacrificing for people around you. Now, I would fail you miserably um, if all I did was talk about the human component of marriage. Because even the further you go deep into the mystery of marriage, friends, what you come to find is that ultimately the reason marriage is still celebrated where the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says, I wish you were all like me. Single and chaste, (laughs) celibate and following Jesus and fully dedicated to the purposes of the gospel. Some of you are going to get married. (laughs) Got to give the full counsel of the biblical testimony around this. Why is marriage still so great? Alongside of the vocation of singleness that the Apostle Paul also celebrates. Because ultimately, it is an opportunity to perform something. The singleness has an opportunity to perform something brilliant for the world looking on. Marriage has an opportunity to perform something for the world looking on. In marriage, you have the opportunity to perform the gospel message in a unique way as well. That's why it continues to be such a great thing. Not just because it's good in and of itself, but because it's good for the gospel. And as people who follow Jesus, that's our ultimate aim. And as we step into this, when we lean into the callings to which God has called us, they always make us more like him. And this is where we see true Christian marriage is ultimately a signpost, friends. It's ultimately a signpost. You know, West Hill, I was at an evangelical free church um, theology conference, man, eight years ago, nine years ago. And Wesley Hill, um, uh, someone who had 
be labeled as a gay Christian or someone who experiences same-sex attraction and following Jesus' path of celibacy for him in the midst of that, seeking to honor the biblical framework for sexuality from Genesis to Revelation. And he got up there and he said, listen, listen, listen. Single folks have the wonderful opportunity to mirror how one day we will neither give in marriage nor be given in marriage. (laughs) That's a great way to mirror. That's an important vocation. Marriage also here has an opportunity to display the gospel drama as well. You see, when you look at marriage, you should never just see your marriage. It is a signpost. Look at verse 32 afresh. And this is right after when you think of the father, uh, or or rather, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a quote all the way back from Genesis, because once again, all the New Testament authors keep going back to the Old Testament and say, this is still scripture. Pay attention. All of God's counsel is good for us. And then he says in verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Christ left his father to come be with us. And he's now come for us, the church, his bride. And in marriage, it's not ultimately about self-fulfillment. It's not about fixing the areas that were broken. That ultimately is what Jesus is doing. But in marriage, we have an opportunity to proclaim that beautiful truth, the gospel on display. This is why the wife, and this is why the apostle Paul gives the language he does. A wife submits to the husband as, Christ, as the church submits to Christ. Because this is a drama. This is displaying something. That when people look on, they're also getting a window into the church, friends. And the husband, he's dying for the bride. And what do we see with Jesus? While we were yet sinners. We wanted nothing to do. We didn't deserve it at all. That's when he's dying. The Apostle Paul's like, oh yeah, just like Jesus died before anybody, before you felt like someone deserved you to die for them, that's what you do in your marriage. It's a drama on display. And so we come to marriage like a visio divina, a place that when people are leaning in this mutual sacrificial dynamic, it does give us a window into Christ and the church. I'm going to give you a really weird story to close this out. Isn't that great? So I was uh, at college, and I had this wonderful Bible professor And he loved his wife. I mean, she passed away probably five years ago, but he talked about her as if she was right there. His beloved, he cherished her. She died because of cancer. He walked with her to the end. I'm going to tell you, it's a weird story. Just be ready, okay? So if you need to buckle up, here we go. But he would talk about how after they would have sex, told you, They sometimes would get out of the bed and they would get down on their knees and they would praise God for what Jesus is to the church. They would praise God for his brilliant design because God thought of sex. God thought up marriage. We didn't. We tend to screw both those things up. And frankly, we tend to lock Jesus out of the bedroom, which is another way of locking out of our life. But that's another conversation for another day. But he was just in tears. And I heard him tell the story like two or three times, but with weeping just... Look at what God is doing. He just saw Jesus everywhere. And that's what the Apostle Paul's doing. He's looking at marriage and he's like, oh, don't you see how this also just pictures the church in Christ? Isn't this wonderful? He's like, you pick up a stone. Oh, this stone is like the stone that rolled away from the tomb where Jesus rose again. It's like, look at this grass. Oh, this is the grass where Jesus saw the Sermon on the Mount. You know, just giving, like everywhere you look, Paul sees Jesus. And when he looks at marriage, he can't help but go, this is what God's doing. He can't help but come back again and again and again to Jesus. So let me ask you this morning, regardless of whether you're single and you have married friends, whether you're married and you have single friends, who are you looking for in marriage? That is the question. Because when the Apostle Paul looks into marriage, he doesn't look, like, look at it as a way to get status. It's not a way to get happiness. It's not a way to finally be fulfilled. It's a way to proclaim Jesus. And listen, all those other good things might come. I'll tell you from experience, it's pretty awesome. And we are to hear within Christian marriage an invitation of Jesus, the bridegroom, saying, you are my beloved. And I will stop at nothing. And I will give all of me 
to show you that I love you and to make a way for us to be together. And then in the midst of that unconditional covenant, we will experience intimacy. And now we really start to get the union language all across Ephesians. He's in us. We are in him. This is marriage language. This isn't just, you know, hookup culture. This isn't just, I happen to be dating you for a while. This is within the covenant framework of I am yours, you are mine for a lifetime. And in the midst of eternity, Jesus says that to us. Jesus always turns marriage on its head. Do you see him? And and we're actually going to come to the Lord's table or what's often called communion, right? And I'll never forget a friend of mine. She was a single mom. She's now since uh, married. She was a single mom for quite a while. And she would always come up to me and I had the opportunity to do her wedding. And she came up and she said, Gabe, for a long time. I honestly was okay not being married. I was like content in my singleness. That's what God had called me to for that season. And for some, it's a season and some for it's a lifetime. And there's joy in both of those. But she said, when I come to the table, I would imagine as I'm taking the bread, dipping the juice, I would imagine Jesus once again renewing his vows with me. And so whether you're a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ, whether you're married, whether you're single, no matter your orientation, in Jesus, when we come to this table, we remember the covenant we have with him. That we are his. He is in us and we are in him. And when you come, you get nourished in the intimacy of our marital bond with Jesus. And that may feel really weird, but so many sisters and brothers throughout history would go to like Song of Solomon And be like, oh, that's talking about us. How much God longs for us. And the Apostle Paul, I think, has all of Song of Solomon even going on in the back of his mind when he's thinking about the brilliant mystical union of Christ with his bride, the church here. So if you are a follower of Jesus, we welcome you to the table because it's a marriage celebration. So if you are not Jesus's and he is not yours, this is an intimacy for those who are his. And all it takes is a surrendering and a receiving of him, a submitting to Jesus, which is crucial, which is a way of saying, Jesus, I trust your guidance in my life. See the picture, embrace the picture, because it has massive implications for your relationship with Jesus too. And so what you'll do is if you're on either of these ends, you'll come to one of the two communion stations on the side. If you're in the middle, you'll circle around to the communion station in the back. And before we come, let's remember what's been handed down to us. And then I'll pray. For the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, think about this with the marital language. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for your word. It speaks a better word, a richer word, and I recognize that there is a lot of stories in this room but I pray that by the power of the Spirit, you would forgive us. Forgive us for the ways we have not trusted you and submitted to you. Forgive us for the ways that we think we know better or we believe that another voice out in the world is going to guide us into a richer intimacy and joy. Forgive us for the ways we've made marriage into an idol rather than seeing our ultimate intimacy and aim of marriage is to glorify you. And so find our deepest joy. God Almighty, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you that you never give up on us, that you're always waiting in the chair to have a good chat, that you're always present and pursuing us. May we rest in that today in the union we have with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So come.